Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joy today, he's a singer, songwriter, CEO of American Rebel, TV host, and entrepreneur. It's Andy Ross. How are you doing today, Andy? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your Rise to the Challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? So uh, born and raised in uh, Chanute, Kansas, a small town in southeast Kansas, uh, the type of town. And, and uh, you know, I'm of the age where things were a lot different kind of growing up than a lot of the younger audience. Uh, you know, we could still go duck hunting before school and come dragging in about 15 minutes late. And our, you know, our principal would say, hey, now, boys, you need to move it along a little uh, faster in the morning. And by the way, did you tag out? Um, so small town, um, you know, great community. Uh, was born and raised there, uh, went to grade school, middle school, high school, did summer jobs, um, worked a lot, you know, a lot of us worked in the oil fields in the summertime or belled hay, but um, right out of high school, uh, moved up to Kansas City, and uh, of course, that was a different experience uh, altogether, being in the big city, but uh, quickly adapted and and uh, took, a, took a liking to a lot of things the city had to offer, and and uh, so I was there up until uh, a lot of different things I'm sure we're going to talk about led me uh, 14 years ago to Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I am now in my home. Living in a small town, did it give you the opportunity to do things that maybe people from a bigger city wouldn't have the opportunity to do, but you enjoyed doing? Oh, looking back, there was, a, you know, we did a lot of things I think people didn't do in the city. And we made we made fun out of uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, one thing in particular, and... Uh, a lot of your audience is going to think I'm crazy, but, you know, in, in Kansas, we could drive when we were 14 and when I grew up. So when, when we were 14 years old, we all drove and had beater cars and thought we had hot rods and, you know, take the muffler off so it sounded cool. But um, me and all my friends and my older brother and sister's friends, we did this this thing night after night, especially on Friday and Saturday nights called We Dragon Main. We have a main street in town with all the stores on it. And we drove this way and we'd turn around at Katy Park and drive back this way to Quick Trip, and turn around and drive back down. And I mean, it was bumper to bumper to bumper to bumper of uh, of all of us just dragging Maine and, you know, every two minutes waving to our friends, the same people we just saw five minutes ago going that way. But um, we had a lot of fun dragging Maine and, and somebody eventually uh, on weekends would have a party if you wanted to know where the the party was you just went to main street and went down the street a couple of times and someone had flagged you down. Hey, we're all at this, you know, we're all going to, to the river or what have you, but um, we had a lot of fun, a small community. The town came out for, our, you know, for football games, and track meets, and you knew everybody, uh, you know, that old saying that it, it takes a community or a, a, a village to raise, a ch- you know, to raise children. That's kind of mm-hmm. how it was. Um, i Neighbor friends of mine at the store, you know, at the uh, on my block, wasn't uncommon for me to go to the store with my neighbors and their and their mom or neighbor kids going to the store with me and my mom. Little kid would have a list, and you know, we'd pick up what he, you know, what his mom wanted, and he'd go along. And um, you know, it was carpool to school. Um, You know, it it was definitely different than what what my children have experienced growing up in the city. So, what was the hardest? in the transition from going from that small town to Kansas city. I'm actually from Missouri. So I know all about oh. Kansas city. What was the hardest? Um, gosh, it was, it was, uh, it, it really didn't take me long to adapt. I, I kind of felt like, uh, 
I was really ready for the change. I, I remember I had my car packed um, at 18 years old, and I hit Garnett, Kansas, maybe Ottawa, Kansas, and found this rock station called KY-102. And it was a Thursday, and uh, all they could talk about was the band that was playing the block Thursday and Friday and Saturday night. Um, I got up to Kansas City, went and said hi to my to my dad, and and uh, man, I wouldn't, I don't think I walked in the door five minutes, and I headed to one block west, <laughs> and uh, saw these bands, the Bad Boys, and uh, and Plain Jane, and, and Lucy, and and uh, just all kinds of different you know bands and music I'd never heard before. Um, you know, again, we could drive at fourteen. Well, in Kansas, when I was young, we could drink at eighteen. You could go to a bar, but they only served beer. You mm-hmm. could, they didn't serve liquor. So they had beer bars. And if you were 18, you could get in. And, and uh, you know, I dove right into it. I grew my hair out and dove into the scene and, you know, picked back up my guitar and, and, uh, and really liked it. I would say, you know, it, it sounds, it sounds uh, simple, but maybe the hardest thing for me was, was, was adapting to the driving. Um, not necessarily the four lane highways, but, two lane turns, um, you know, and, and multiple traffic lights and people just, you know, different directions and, and roundabouts. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of that was, was interesting and, you know, navigating, uh, walking through a shopping mall and getting lost and, you know, just, just everything was bigger. And, uh, and I loved it. See, I'm normal to the, all the different roads. And then if I go into a small town, I'm like, Okay, where's the stop sign? Where do I stop? Is there, how do I get out of this area? So I'm like the complete opposite than you coming from uh, St. Louis, where you can go anywhere and there's roads constantly going. Yeah. And my, you know, and my, my TV show took me through a lot of small towns and back to small towns. And the same thing, and you you just go down that that one road that went through town and there's no stoplights or stop signs (laughs) going anywhere. I guess you just kind of look around and if no one's coming, you keep going and it, you just decide who wants to stop and wave and let the other one go. And, um, uh, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that, uh, one four way stop town many a time. And I, I, I remember thinking exactly what you just said after being acclimated to the city for, you know, 15, 20 years, going back to those towns, um, in, in smaller ones than I grew up in, but yeah, it's like, where does everybody go? <laughs> There's a diner and a bake shop. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about that rock station and falling in love with music. When was the first time music became huge for you? And what type of music was that? So I had a couple of music. And I know a lot of people will say this, but music has always been a big part of my life. And, uh, you know, something that I've really never, never been asked this question uh this 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 far back and deep about music in an interview but um so my dad my father manufactured music equipment when i was little i mean like before i was born when i was two three four five six seven years old my my father manufactured music uh, equipment specifically guitar and bass amps the other thing was i have a sister that's four years older than me and a brother that's five years older than me so when i'm five, they're 12. When I'm, you know, when I'm a teenager or 11, 12, you know, they're, they're 16, six, you know, 15, 16 years old. So my exposure to music, you know, was quite different than even my friends. They're, they're listening to the Partridge family 
and my brother's cranking up, you know, rumors, Fleetwood Mac and Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band and Sticks. And, you know, my dad was playing Cretan's Clearwater Revival, you know, and the Eagles and stuff when I was growing up. So I, I got a dose of it early. Um, I listened to a lot of, I, I think today in today's world, the way parenting and how far music's gone with, with profanity and everything. I, at the time I was probably listening to music that my friends' parents were thinking, there's no way I would let my son listen to that. Yeah. You know, witchy woman, the Eagles. Oh, that's, you know, Clearwater. But uh, I just grew up with it. I just thought rock and roll and, and uh, great music and fast. And I still listen to that music. Sticks and Fleetwood Mac and Bob Seger and, and uh, you know, all that classic rock. I still love it. Did that get you interested in wanting to pursue a career in music? So I think like most you know, kids, junior high and, and what have you. We called middle school junior high. Um, you know, every every kid for one minute or two wants to, to be a rock star, I guess. Yeah. Um, I could play and, and uh, you know, had those kind of kid daydreams. Um, but, you know, we got, I got to music. I could play music and I did play. Um but I kind of got to I got to where I've gotten to in music now from from having an audience from the TV show and doing some music on the show and the timing of digital music, iTunes, smartphones, where all of a sudden I'm making music that's going viral. And and I ended up with a music career as is like just one more blessing that flew my way from something else I was doing which started from something else I was doing, which started from <laughs> something else I was doing. So, yeah, I wanted to play and, you know, I, I, I pretended to be rock star and stuff. I think like every kid did and wanted to be a race car driver and, you know, a few other things. Um, but it, it, uh, it didn't really, it didn't really hit me that I could have a music career until I guess uh, I started writing, putting out some music. We started getting some revenue from iTunes and then because of that, better writers and people who had been more experienced in the business were willing to work with me. And I just jumped at the opportunity. What was that first career jump that you took? So I, um, you know, I was an avid bow hunter and I wanted to, uh, uh, I loved to bow hunt. And I, I had had another little business that I'd made a few dollars at and, for some reason, I decided that I'm a bow hunter and I should make a bow. I should have my own bow. And when I made my own bow, I thought if I make 50 of them and you know sell 40 a year, I wasn't really thinking that it, at the moment it was going to be a business. Mm-hmm. But I made a bow and uh, it was called Ross Archery and went to a sold some, went to a trade show and really sold more than, than I thought I was going to. I realized pretty, pretty quick. I might have a business on my hands. So we started manufacturing bows and shipping bows, but what was coming about was, and was really popular at the time, not that it's not popular now, but hunting TV uh, with the outdoor channel had gotten really popular. And I loved Ralph and Vicky and uh, uh, at at Archer's choice. And of course, uh, you know, Lee and Tiffany were very successful and, and uh, Michael Waddell and Tim Wells. And, you know, they had these shows on there and everybody kept telling me these stores 
they kept telling me, hey, we're going to carry your bow. We may buy a couple or we're not ready to buy your bow. But they all have one thing in common to say is if you don't get someone who's on TV to shoot your bow, um, you're not really going to have a run at this because the hunting TV is so popular, especially archery, because you're up close 20 yards, 30 yards away. And, and uh, you know, it's hard to get 20 or 30 yards away from your game. Shooting the arrow, a lot of people can shoot the arrow, but try to get in 20 yards and then exactly. carry, carry a cameraman with you. You know, you got to, you can't, you got to watch your scent, your noise, your sight, everything. And then you got to hope he's doing the same. So um, anyway, I could not get anybody on TV to shoot my bow. They had contracts with great bow companies like Hoyt and Bowtech and Matthews. They'd never heard of my bow. Even if they didn't, they're like, I don't know. You know, you're new. Um, but most of them had multiple contracts. In fact, I'll never forget Primo's signed a, a 10 year, $1 million deal with, with, uh, yeah, with, with, with Matthews. And I thought that's unbelievable. And, and uh, anyway, so no one was going to shoot my bow. So I had a friend that filmed part-time with the Drury brother, brothers and I, Mike Osborne, I called him my main man, Mike. And I took Mike out and said, Hey, if I go on a couple of hunts and you're not out with those guys, would you come out and film some of my hunts? So over the hunting season, I filmed four hunts. I made a DVD, had it edited, and I put the DVD in the box with the bows. That's the best I could do. It was me and four hunts on a DVD. Well, about three months later, I got a call from the network. They had gotten their hands on the DVD and they asked me if I wanted to have my own TV show. So I started Maximum Archery, um, my own show. And then I think where, where it really moved for me, I did it for 10 years on outdoor TV and a bow hunt of the world. And I mean, Mozambique and Zimbabwe and Botswana and New Zealand and, and the Yukon and, you know, Alaska and Mexico, I bow-hunted a feral bullfighting bull in Mexico for some reason. But um, where it really came to, came to light for me was I saw what these X games were doing, and I saw what the video games were doing, what kids were doing on skateboards and bicycles. And I just I said to my cameraman, I said, you know, three years into the show, maybe four, I said, no one's going to want to watch me sitting up in a tree going, hey, it's Tuesday. The wind's coming out of the west. Where are the cannons? <laughs> I mean, this is boring compared to what those kids are doing. So I changed the name of the show from Maximum Archery to Maximum Archery World Tour. And I took all the dates that were uh, that I was going to hunt for that season and all the species that I was hunting, or the, the cities or the states and location and the species. And I put them across the shirt like this, like a Van Halen concert shirt, a Journey concert shirt. And uh, changed the name to Maximum Archery World Tour. We started filming the travel of the hunts, going into the laundry mats, going into little small town homemade, you know, honey blonde on tap bar, you know, places, little small places, shooting darts, playing the jukebox. We just started filming the travel, the trouble we'd get into, the camaraderie. And that became half the show and the hunt became half the show. Well, I could play some music and I could write some songs so i wrote some hunting songs so i would have my own music going in and out of the, uh, the the commercials when the show started through the opener and when the credits rolled and they were all hunting songs gotta go hunting blues hunt me down blood trail on a white tail you know stuff like that and uh but 
then all of a sudden iTunes and smartphones. And the next thing I knew, people were downloading those, those songs. And I sold enough of them that um, got the attention of some people. And they said, hey, why don't you come to Nashville and let's make a real record? And that was four records ago. So During that time with the show, what did it teach you that you didn't know you had in you? I think, you know, there was a lot of things in the show. First of all, just just the physical drive that it took to do the show. I mean, I'm hunting mountains. I'm living in places, you know, hiking, going as far as you can and then by vehicle and then getting eight hours on horseback, pack mules, living in spike tents, breaking water or breaking ice off the water in the morning off the river to get water to make coffee, you know, saddling horses at 4.30 and 5 in the morning. Um a lot of endurance that I, that I definitely didn't have. I got in a, I got in pretty good shape from all that. Um, learned a lot about horsemanship through all that. Um, learned a lot about charity, uh, about what it means to the people that are hungry. Um, we had a, a charity called hunters for the hungry had hunted in towns where, where people would post on a bulletin board. The church would make a list of people and they would say, if you will take the deer, and then just field dress it real quick. You can drop it on this person's porch. They'll butcher it. They would love to have it. Um, you know, learning what uh, a lot about what people's needs were. Uh, living in areas uh, in villages in Alaska, especially uh, villages in Mozambique and Zimbabwe. Uh, learning how happy some people are that live so simple in some of those places. Um, and how... Uh, uh, how little you can get by on and how important community and family learned a lot from a lot of people. I lived with a lot of different people from a lot of different cultures in camps, uh, in their areas. Um, so we, you know, we learned a lot about that. I also learned, uh, a lot about hunting, the sport of hunting, why to do it, the, the majestic value of, of, of taking an animal, um, all the uses for that animal. And then, and then I learned a lesson a little later on, and I, I don't tell this story too often. Um, but, you know, when I got to the point of the end of the 10 years, everybody says, well, your music took off. So you left the show after 10 years. You quit doing the show because your music took off. Well, that's partly true. But there the last couple of years of it, after I'd hunted so much and taken so many animals, even though we did all the right things with the animals, hunters for the hungry and what have you, it, I got to the point where like, man, I am just doing this to be on TV. I don't, I don't really want to go do that right now. I don't really need to take this deer today, but the camera's on me. And once I started hunting, I love hunting. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying anything about, about hunting but you got to be doing it for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And once I was doing it because people stood in line around the corner for me to sign DVDs and posters. And that's why I was hunting instead of why I was doing it in the first place. It really, it really kind of wore on me. And I was kind of like, I've, I've either got to take a big break here or get my, you know, get my head right about this, but I'm just not going to do this anymore for the attention of being on TV. I want to hunt, but I don't ever, I mean, and I've hunted since, but I'll never hunt with a camera on me again. I just, I'm just, I just got done. And thankfully I had a, I had a, a you know, situation with music to fall on and roll right into because I needed it. That's for sure. 
what would you say your music style is? If someone's, you look at all the different genres, what would be your style or do you not have one? Yeah, I, I think I got a style. Um, I, I'll tell you the style and I'll tell you, I'll tell you first how I got to the style. Um, I like to rock and uh, my, my contacts because of hunting was country, country guys, country arts. Yeah. You know, I've written with Lee Bryce and I mean, People like Blake Shelton and, and Rascal Flatts and these guys, they watched my show. And the producers and the people that wanted to work with me were in Nashville and they were country. And I wanted to rock. So, you know, my my great friend and, and president of my company now, um, great partner, been with him 12 years, manager, producer, Doug Grau. He's like, look, I got these number ones. You know, I got... As a producer, I got about 11 number ones, these CMA awards, these songs of the year. My lane's country. And, uh, you know, if you want to get the best of me and the best of what I can do for your music, we need to be thinking country. And I want to rock. So we kind of <laughs> melted the two. And, uh, you know, I guess now you could call it country rock, but I was doing country rock before it was country rock. A lot of people call it southern rock. They say sometimes I sound a little... My music sounds a little like a new version of Skinner or something like that. Um, I just call it Andy Ross music. And I'm very thankful that nobody can sing Andy Ross music like me because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not going to win the voice. So um, luckily I've landed on a sound in a niche and, and uh, you know, blessed to have it. I love that fusion of country rock because it's something unique because everyone thinks, oh, country, it's got that same it same style of rock. Oh, they're rocking out and drumming. But nowadays, no one's just a singular version. They have everyone puts their own spin on it and it kind of helps show their identity and their yeah. love for music. And I can tell based on how you're talking, you do that with your music. You want to kind of put your passion and soul into it and give your listeners your style music that they love to listen to each time. Well, you know, and, and, and thank you very much. And, and Doug Grau helped me define it because like up into this, up into that point, I'd only wrote hunting songs. Mm -hmm. And so, well, what are you about? I, I mean, I, I love hot rods. Um, I've, I've never gun hunted in my, and other than shotguns like pheasant, quail and ducks. But I mean, I've never hunted big game with a gun. It was all archery but I do like the shooting sports and I do like to shoot handguns and I like to practice and train and go to the range. And so Doug's like, well, here's, here's the thing, Andy, he's talking to me before we made the first record. You ain't seen crazy yet. He said, you know, bow hunting is this big hunting is this big and all this other stuff you're doing, but your patriotism, your love for the second amendment, love for the country, love for the constitution, you know, everything you stand for, it's this big. Mm -hmm. You know, so do you want to, do you want to stay in the bow hunting or, or widen to hunting or widen to here or, or, you know, open it all up to, you know, uh, as I call it, uh, you know, America's patriotic country rock and roll. And, uh, that's where we came up, you know, wrote songs like American rebel and, and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the patriotic anthems haven't got a hellraiser, the new song coming out this Friday, all American heart. So we, we leaned on that. And uh, I, I could only write songs from experience and from inside. I, uh, I'm not the type of writer that can really sit down and say, you know, let's write a song about uh, this girl who met this guy in this town and make the whole thing up. 
I mean, all my songs come from, you know, you can listen, you could, you could listen to my records and it's, it's a biography of my life pretty much. And, and, um, so I can't make stuff up too well. So that's what we did. We settled in on it. And often I like to say, you know, if the Eagles came out today as a band, they were a rock band. If they came out today, I'm not so sure they wouldn't be a country band. I don't know how they would be labeled. They're certainly a country rock band. They wouldn't be considered one of, you know, the country's biggest rock bands. Um, they'd be amazing, but they would be maybe country. Looking at all the performances and events that you performed at, what has been a memorable one for you? I get to do a lot of uh, of patriotic festivals, and those are always the funnest. I did uh, Armed Forces Day Festival, Weekend for Our Heroes, Freedom Festival. Um, the biggest show I've ever played is the NRA, uh, NRA Night Race at Bristol Motor Speedway. Um, you know, to that big NASCAR audience. I've played a couple of NASCAR events that are always fun. Um, I like to do the stuff where I like uh, with the with the motocross people, and when I did the the four wheelers at race, you know the NGCC. Uh, I did I wrote playing in the mud for them, so when I play their events, everybody everybody knows the song and loves the song playing in the mud. Um, so I, I like to tie to the to those kind of festivals. I also really like to play bike rallies. Um, okay, Bullet County, yeah, Bullet County Bike Fest, Sturges, that kind of stuff. Uh, they love you ain't seen crazy yet. Outlaw women and whiskey. Heaven got a Hellraiser. Um, they love those songs, especially Heaven got a Hellraiser. They've played it at biker funerals and and events, and and uh, so I love to play the the biker routes. Do you feel that you, since you enjoy those kind of things like the outdoors, you talked about your pet love for hot rides and things like that. It makes it more enjoyable when you get that call or that opportunity to go to those festivals where it just feels at home. Like you just enjoy yeah. that atmosphere in a way. Yeah. It's, it's definitely um, to, to walk in there and um, you know, roll up and, and just be one of them. I mean, I've, I've had a, a, a really unbelievable uh, amount of success, um, but I still, I, I still don't wear fancy watches. I don't spend a lot of money on clothes and I still drive a Jeep and, and, uh, you know, that's just who I am. So when I get to go play events for, uh, you know, for people that I'd hang out with anyway, it's always, you know, always a lot more fun. Do you miss hosting a show or do you feel that was one chapter you're ready for whatever the next chapter is to come? Um, I definitely miss hosting the show. And we've talked about uh, at American Rebel a few ways to to do a show. The big uh the big difference for me is when I did my show, we were on a network. Mm -hmm. um, so many of the shows now are, uh, you know, YouTube shows and, and, and shows that are uh, streamed. And, you know, I'd have, I've got a little bit of a learning gap there to figure that one out. Uh, but we do have a couple ideas and a couple of things in the can. And I think if uh, a couple, when I say things in the can, I mean, we've actually shot some footage and done some, um, you know, some short versions of what, what one might be like a pilot, if you will, on a, a show called back on the back roads. Um, so we've, we've experimented around with it. Um, what I'm going to have to do is, is uh, the music. It's going to have to be based around the music somewhat because I couldn't do a TV show and the music um, mm -hmm. going to have to be something I can do from the road and something I can do no matter where I'm at 
but you know, I have this business now as well. That's, that's done really well from as a result of all this. And it really does take some time and uh, it's a big learning curve and takes a lot of my time too. When I was doing the TV show, Maximum Archery World Tour, um, I had the bow business, but for part of that, but it was kind of one and the same. Um, it was just the, the, the show was, was a glorified commercial on TV for the bow business. And so it was kind of one and the same. Um, and I didn't have the music now with American rebel being a much larger business to run. Um, and the music being a lot bigger than it was. I don't quite know how to work TV into it, but I'm going to figure it out. You talked about American Rebel, and I want to get more into that. Talk about the creation of it and the vision behind it. So, like, as I've said here earlier, I had the TV show that I did a little music on and turned into this music career that I have. That's how American Rebel got here. In 2015, I had a song I wrote called American Rebel. Became kind of a patriotic anthem. Uh, did really well. And, uh, you know, when we sold CDs in the very beginning, there was some good revenue. Mm-hmm. When iTunes came out, um, there was a lot less revenue because even though iTunes was, was a great source, a lot of people on the Internet can also get the music for free one way or another. Um, so here came iTunes and we, because of iTunes, we sold a lot more music than we did on CD, but the revenue was a lot smaller. And then streaming was coming around the corner, which even does the same thing, right? Uh, bigger distribution, but a lot, a lot smaller revenue. Um, so we had this song out called American Rebel and uh, a friend of mine in Arizona, we were talking about it. I met him out about four o'clock, uh, in the afternoon we met and, and had some appetizers and a couple beers. And I said, he was asking about the song. I said, you know, I have the, uh, the rough cut to the video. It's not the final cut, but I've got it on my laptop. If you want to see it? And I showed it to him and he just looked at me and he said, Andy, he said, uh, American rebel. He says, that's your brand. I said, well, it'd be a good brand. He said, no, you don't understand. That's you. That's your, that's your brand. That whole song is you, that's your brand. And the song is the mission statement for the company, for the brand that that's your brand. Coincidentally, Doug Grau and I had been talking about two or three weeks before that, that we ought to try to figure out a way to monetize the music. Maybe we ought to have some products around, but not that defined. So I called Doug and he's, yeah, that's right on. That's what we need to do. So we put out some concealed carry products. I designed concealed carry backpacks, coats, jackets, um, a product that would allow someone who was going to carry, who wanted to carry a handgun, but be able to do it in a safe and effective way where they knew where the firearm was, where it was pointed, how to get to it, but no one else really knew how to get to it. Um, And the backpack or coat or jacket would also work for everyday use. It would hold your laptop, books, you know, files, uh, cards and pens and whatever else you wanted to use. So you could go about your day. Um, we, we called it our proprietary protection pocket. And our slogan was American Rebel, keeping you concealed and safe. So we had our concealed carry uh, products out there. And we've expanded that into uh, into gun safes. And that business has really taken off for us. Um, the business has taken off so well to the point of running it since 2015 Um, you know, some seven years later, February of 2022, 
this year, we became a fully reporting publicly traded company on NASDAQ. So I'm now the CEO, you can add CEO of publicly traded NASDAQ company to the list of uh, Bo Hunter and singer songwriter and so on. And, and, and that has a lot of challenges running a public company versus running a private company has a lot of uh, challenges, regulations, responsibilities, filings, reportings. Um, and so that's been a little bit of a learning curve. Thank you. Uh, thankfully, Doug Grau, um, you know, he's a quick learner and he had a good uh, understanding of it all as we, as we rolled into it. So um, we didn't, we didn't lose much, uh, much ground. And the guy I was telling you about in Arizona, my friend, Corey, he's actually ran public companies and sits on the board of public companies and became a board of director for us. So we had a good team around us, good CFO. And, uh, we're, we're going like crazy right now. Things are going fantastic. Would you say your part in the company is more like the face of the company, like getting the exposure out there, really showcasing the products and wearing it and things like that? Because you've had this career of being in the front of the public eye and people would trust your opinions on certain things. And if you're making a product, they're going to believe it's a great product. Well, that that was the idea. And, and that is probably the biggest hat that I wear. Um, somehow I went from being in front of a camera on TV and doing music in front of people. Well, you know, we do a lot of investor conferences and, 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 and investor meetings. Uh, we do road shows on Zoom when we're raising capital. And so all of a sudden I became the one that, uh, you know, that kind of shined at doing that. So I, I became the one they wanted. They want to hear the story, but they want to hear it from me. Mm-hmm. So um, not that Corey and Doug don't participate very well in these with me, but so I have the, the responsibility of raising capital. When we go to meet with the investment banks, they want me out there. They want me in the investment bank meetings. Um, I just did meetings in Miami uh, two weeks ago, almost the whole week. And then we just uh, almost to complete an acquisition of, of our number two competitor. And um, so I'm in the factories. I'm in the, the factory both in Mexico and the United States. Last week I was in, uh, flew into Salt Lake and was in Provo, Utah all week. The, the salespeople want to meet with me. The fact the guy's responsible for trucking, for for uh, raw material purchasing, running the paint shop, you know, of, of the products. They all they all want to meet, and I find myself just wearing all kinds of hats. But yeah, I think I think you're 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 spot on with you know, if what is your number one role? And if the company grew to the point where you had to share some of these responsibilities, what one would you keep and give up last? And it's exactly what you said, be in the face of the company, telling the story. See, everybody right now, we're heavy in the safe business, mm-hmm. really heavy in the safe business, the safe business, not just gun safe. Safes are becoming the new home appliance. People yeah. are keeping more valuables at home. People, uh, new gun owners, they buy two guns and they buy a safe. When I grew up, I had about 18 guns where I bought a safe because I've had a gun since I was six. <laughs> um, but now, you know, as you see these activities that used to be a little violent in the city, they're moving to the suburbs and people in the suburbs are buying guns. They go buy one or two guns. They buy a safe. People's coin collections. People are keeping cash at home. It's harder to deposit. So the safe's becoming the new home appliance. And, there, and people initially that don't know American Rebel, they would look at us and look at our product offering and then say you're a safe company. But we're not a safe company. We're a lifestyle brand company. 
Mm-hmm. I want to see I want to see American Rebel wheelbarrows, American Rebel generators, American Rebel pull cues, American Rebel racing parts, American Rebel beer, um, American Rebel beef jerky. I want Susie to go up to mom and say, "Mom, what's Dad want for Father's Day?" And she says, "Honey, anything with American Rebel on it." So we look like a safe company now because that's where our bread and butter is, and that's where our focus is, and it's going to be there for a while. It's a it's a big growing business, and we're really good at it, but. We're going to do licensing. We're going to uh, do more acquisitions. We're going to do more uh, development of product. And we're a lifestyle brand. So when it comes to being the face of the company or sharing the story, it's it's only my story out of our great group of people. But it's my story that got us here. And it was my vision. So I have to continue to do that. And it's easy for me to do it because it's my life. And it's true. And it's organic. And it's easy I just have to tell the story of how, how we got here, and what the vision is. So um, that would be your, your 100% spot on. That is my number one responsibility. You talked about a lot of different parts that you take on. Has there ever been a time where it's gotten overwhelming and you're scared of what's going to happen if I miss something or I don't get something done or it doesn't go the way that you thought it would? Yeah, the, you know, the, the scary part when – when that happens, when things start slipping and sliding deadlines and things aren't getting done, it's it's a hard lesson. But you have to remember, I have to remember that my priority is not everybody else's priority. Mm-hmm. I want I want my attorney, my my group of attorneys to get this done today. I need it today. And and maybe they maybe they do. They have other clients, of course, but maybe they do. But then they've got to send it to the acquisition target, the investment bank or both several different people and maybe their attorneys are working for someone else that has to have something today. And just because we sent it to them Monday morning, they may not review it till Thursday, Yeah, you know, and then they've got a reply. And then I got to hope when it gets back to my team that they've got, you know, so you're not, you're not always everybody's priority, whether that's um, in accounting or, or the, 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 the people you're doing business with or the retailer you're trying to talk to, or the lady you want to talk to at the trade show, or, you know, the, the guys you've got working the trade show may have a wedding themselves getting married and there might be a vacation. And I mean, everybody de- deservingly so and rightfully so has their priorities and their priorities are not my priorities um, and they shouldn't be. But when you got to get something done yesterday, you, <laughs> you, 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 you are, are you kidding me? That guy's been trying to we've been waiting for you to talk to that guy for three days. He called you back and you missed his call. And you're telling me the two of you are now playing phone tag. You know, (laughs) well, Andy, I was in a board meeting for another, you know, maybe another company I sat on and they're important to me too. So you just got to learn. You just got patience. It's really, it's really uh, in this public world. And as your company gets bigger and you have more people you're dealing with, you just got to have patience to understand that not everybody's on your, you know, not everybody woke up and looked at Andy Ross's calendar. (laughs) back um but you know your shareholders call and and people and your people that are counting on you call and they don't know why why is it taking so long how come you didn't get this done how come they didn't get back it's just you know people being people you gotta you gotta roll with it a little bit so what does the future look like for you what are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years both personally and professionally okay um I business wise, um, 
I want to grow American Rebel into exactly what I said, America's patriotic brand, and um, write a book, uh, American Rebel, The Making of America's Patriotic Brand. And hopefully 50 years after I'm gone, someone's still reading that book and this brand still exists. And uh, I'll be the, the original uh, founder and the original CEO. And I want to see the brand carry on long after I'm here to, to carry it along. Um, obviously, music's a big, important uh uh, piece of my life. I want to continue to excel. Um, I, I have a song right now. I got to kind of keep it a little bit under wraps, but I have a, a song that I've wrote that is on hold with a major artist, a major, major, you know, artist that uh, plays arenas um, that I believe is going to cut it. And so I would love to have, if I'm ever going to have a, num- a number one song that I wrote, it's probably going to be something I wrote that a bigger artist cut. I mean, I, mm-hmm. that's not my lane. My lane is is right where it is, and, and I'm thankful to have it. Um, I've started a uh, a mission, if you will. Um, I want to, uh, because I make concealed carry clothing, or American Rebel makes concealed carry clothing, we have access to a lot of cut and sew factories that make coats and blankets and those types of things. So um, if you saw a coat at a retail store for 100 bucks they've probably bought it for 50 or 60 and marked it up to a hundred. There's probably a distributor in there. And the truth of the matter is that coat was probably manufactured for $30. Mm-hmm. Well, I could make coats for $30. So I can take the same hundred dollar bill. I wanted to make a coat for needy children or the homeless. I could take the same hundred dollar bill and make three of them because I've got the factory. So um, American rebel, me personally, and some other business call uh, colleagues and, and, People we do business with, um, you know, we're in the process of running a thousand coats. Um, I'd like to see us, you know, running five and 10,000 a year. If, if I could feed the hungry, if I own Del Monte uh, or the Jolly Green Giant, whatever, you know, vegetable <laughs> company, I would do food. But mm-hmm. I don't make food. I, I can make coats. And so that's what I figure my calling would be is let's go do what you can do, what you know how to do. So the charity stuff. Is, is getting more and more important to me because I've always believed at some point you, you have to have, you have to have a goal bigger than yourself. Cause the truth is if I didn't care about America's patriotic brand and this company being here a long time after I'm gone and doing some work like what I'm getting ready to do with the, with the coats and so on. If I didn't have that, if I didn't have those goals and if I didn't have a goal to write a better song, you know, if I didn't have those goals, I've already got songs. I could, I might be able to cash out, go live on a rock and be fine. So mm-hmm. I got to have something bigger than me to, to make me want this whole thing to even be bigger than I can dream it to be this big for myself. But if I think about helping tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, then I can, then it's got to be this big. And I like, I want it to be that big. So, um, that, those are my, I guess, my long-term goals and, and really to figure it all out. I mean, I'm, I'm just in the beginning stages of figuring out the, the giving part and the contributing part and the doing for others part. That's just, uh, I'm just in the, in, in the beginning stages in my life of being able to do that. Um, but it's very motivating to figure out how to be able to do more and more of it, which means I have to be more and more successful to do more and more of it. So um, it's good to have a big plan. 
The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? Well, you know, you hear this a lot. First of all, you never give up, you know, as long as, as long you can never give up. And, um, you know, I'm a man of faith. So I say, God, I'm not here to preach to anybody. I'm just witnessing but uh, I, I truly believe that things don't always happen in your time. They happen in this, this time that, that, that is given to you. And if you just keep going, it'll happen. It may not be the way you wanted it or in the time you wanted or exactly the direction you wanted. Um, you know, I would also say that you, uh, one thing I had to learn uh, in life, and I don't know whoever would be listening, what age they're at, but I learned that you, uh, you can't stay up all night and hoop with the owls and soar with the eagles in the morning. Um, so, um, you know, you got to get that figured out. I like to go out. I like to party. I like to have a good time. Um, but you just, you know, and, and when you get a little success under your belt, you could do it every night. I could go out every night of the week if I wanted to, but it'll take about, you know, four to six weeks and I'll see my, you know, my personality, my health, my work habits, my, everything will just start to decline. So I try to keep it the weekends and, uh, or, or, you know, one or two nights a week. Um, but you know, the easiest way to go to bed early and, and not be bored to go and not looking for something to do is get up early. So, yeah. you know, if I sit here tonight and I can't go to sleep till midnight, I'm, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee at, at 19th and Broadway, about every bar you can think of is within walking distance of me right now. Um, but if I get up at five o'clock and try to get to the gym and work my butt off all day, Honest, by, by 8.30, I'm wishing it was, you know, 10 o'clock so I could go to bed. Um, so I've got to get up early. I've got to, I've got to stay busy. So, I, so I, I'm not bored trying to find things to do that I, that I shouldn't be doing. But it's important. You can't, you can't uh, hoot with, the, you know, hoot with the, the, the owls all night and soar with the eagles in the morning. You've got you to really be committed to this, this thing called success and, uh, or, or just lifestyle or just happiness. Um, but once you get a piece of it, you get a taste of it, it gets addictive and you don't mind changing your habits a little bit. You got to change your habits. I mean, there's a big difference. You've heard that saying an apple a day keeps the doctor away. And that sounds pretty silly that you could eat one apple and it would keep the doctor away. But, you know, over a course of a year, it will make a difference if you eat an apple a day or a Hershey bar a day. If you want to eat a Hershey bar a day for a year or an apple a day for a year, it will make a difference in your health. And a lot of the disciplines and things you need to do to be successful or, or chase a dream or chase a goal or chase the American dream are really that simple. Just choose the apple over the Hershey bar and you're on your way. Well, I think I would wish I could just eat a Hershey bar every day, but I don't think my doctor would like that if I you did. You and me both. Now, would you, would you be an almond? Would you be a Hershey's with almond or no almond guy? No almonds, except the weird part is I probably would do the almonds because I like them now. When I was younger, no, I (laughs) give me the plain chocolate and I'm good. (laughs) Well, Andy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. I'm thankful to be here. It's a blessing and I'll be here anytime. You just let us know. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe to all major audio platforms. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to get a full-length episode in video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.